gloomy, mostly Euclidean confines of Castle Gormagon, upon the lofty wind-blasted heights of the Plateau of Lang, I am Confucius the Ecumenical Volgi, and this is Radio Gormagon. So what are y'all doing about attracting and retaining the youth of today? Um, I bring this up because my daughter, who is a freshman in high school and was confirmed last year, she doesn't feel connected to our parish. A lot of that has to do with the fact that the parish doesn't have a youth group. Uh, she does, you know, she does uh, the fellowship of Christian athletes through her school. She goes to her friends' youth groups, so uh, Presbyterian and Episcopal. But, you know, it bothers her that there's not that calling for her at our parish where there's, you know, that, that sense of community, so to speak. It's somewhere she goes to church. And she doesn't have that, she's not feeling that connection. I mean, I even told her like last year before she even got confirmed, I said, listen, you know, when you get confirmed, you got to want to be confirmed. I mean, that's the whole point of being confirmed. And, you know, and I think genuinely she wanted to be confirmed. But, but I told her, I said, listen, if, if you don't feel ready, if the spirit's not moving you to do this, wait. You know, I was like, Miss Skinner will freak out. Um, other, you know, some other people might freak out. I don't care. Your father's not going to freak out because he'd rather you be ready. So, right. so what is your parish doing to really, other than doing mass correctly, <laughs> to attract and retain the youth? Right. That's a, and that's, that's a really good question. So I think we should go back to Gort and go to the rest of the questions that the uh, Gormagans had. No, I'm just messing with you. Um, <laughs> so I think uh, there, it's, it totally depends on the parish and it depends how many young people you have. depends if you have a school. There are a lot of factors that go into what the church, especially here in the U.S., which is what I can best talk about, is doing for young people. Um, in my parish, we don't have a whole lot of young people, but we're trying to do things with uh, youth groups. And I'd love, and I'm trying to get them to do some retreats and some really good Catholic summer camp type opportunities because it's wonderful to do things week to week, and it's very important to get them involved, like we were talking about before, getting people involved in ministries at the church. But also, I think it's essential for young people to just go out and do retreats every once in a while, even if it's just once a year, uh, to go do a Steubenville type retreat, go do a Net Ministries retreat, go do something like that where it's very good. Uh, run by very good people, very authentically Catholic, and gets them amongst other young people and gets them away from a lot of adults so that they have a very authentic experience. And then hopefully, you know, they can have at least some experience of being on fire for their faith and then just keep doing that year after year. And hopefully they, they choose it for themselves in addition to the day-to-day things, like you said, having a youth group. And it's tough. You know, so many Protestant churches do it so much better. They have a really great youth group, and they'll have a youth minister, and they'll be doing so many things, like you said, Fellowship of Christian Athletes, all these different opportunities. And then the Catholic Church is like, well, you come on Sunday, that's great. And that's it. You know, like you said, oh, do confirmation. We'll basically consider you graduated from the church, and we won't see you again, you know. Uh, it's something that a lot of us struggle with and is so essential because we screwed up with this generation, then you know, there's not going to be a whole lot left next generation. Well, and I think kids are, you know, uh, pardon the language, but kids are great bullshit detectors. They can see right through when people aren't being real. I, I agree 100%. You got to be authentic and you got to do what the church actually teaches. Yeah, and, and I don't know why. I think some of the maybe 70s folk kumbaya stuff still lingers in the, some of the youth organizations within the church. And, and 
I don't think the kids have a tolerance for it these days with just because of society maybe, but, but let's, let's stop pulling punches and let's teach them the faith. And like, part of me thinks that if you put it out there and you're honest about it and you say, you know, this is what being a Catholic's about. And this is why, you know, we believe in, and in essence, our, our faith, our, the practicing of our religion hasn't changed in two, over 2000 years. It's core and it's withstood the, the test of time. I agree, absolutely. Uh, and that was something that attracted me when I was in youth group about, you know, 97 years ago. <laughs> very much enjoyed it that the priests and seminarians that came through the parish, including the pastor, weren't, weren't hesitant in the slightest about giving us exactly what the church taught, uh, even when it was difficult, especially when it was difficult. And they were very happy to say, no, this is exactly what the church teaches about premarital sex, about uh, gay marriage, about just any kind of topic. And then, oh, yes, and here is also what the church teaches about the lives of the saints. And here's some really interesting things. And here's some things that we do that look insane to people outside the church, like relics and stuff like that. And giving us an extremely authentic experience. And just like you said, just giving it to us straight and giving us answers. And sure, you know, they give examples and things like that. And, and you know, and I, I try to explain things a certain way. Like whenever people bring up stuff about the church and marriage and sex, I say, hey, the church is a romantic. And the church wants us to live the ideal. And, you know, and it's the truth with the, how the church sees things, even if it's a little more palatable. But like you said, I mean, with kids, you just got to be authentic all the time and not put on a face for them. Because like you said, they'll just look right through it. They, they know exactly when you're just trying to make something up, be buddy, buddy or something dumb like that. So, Father Dress, I have a question for you. And, I, and again, this is maybe an uncomfortable question. And if you don't want to answer the best it, kind, I don't you know. I understand if you want to answer it. You know, I, I taught religious ed for a few years for my son and his, you know, cohorts and I remember going through the Virtus training and everything else and I, you know I'm, I'm in the back of your mind I mean I wonder how much of the fact that you know parents are reluctant to maybe let their kids participate in a lot of these activities because of the whole you know priest pedophilia issues that the church has had and how they've addressed it and people are afraid in some respects and maybe they don't all right come out and say it but do you think that that might have had any effect on the fact that it's hard to get these kids into these programs and that the parents, not maybe so much the kids, because the kids may be oblivious to what's going on, but as parents know, especially in our age group, in the late 30s, early 40s, mid 40s, we've seen this whole thing unfold. I mean, I've got good friends that are, you know, involved with SNAP and everything else, and, you know, they've gone through the abuse. How much of that taints that going forward? I'm, I'm just curious if you think that has any adverse effect, or is that something the church can overcome eventually? I think a lot of it depends on where you are. And I do remember something from, I think, around 2003, 2005, where it was another one of those research polls. And they talked about, um, they interviewed people and they, their feelings about the priest pedophilia scandal. And they had very strong feelings about the priesthood in general, you know, and being afraid and this and that and all, oh, how would a, you know, what an awful thing this is and how often it happens and that sort of thing. But they loved their priest. And they didn't think it, it true of their priest. And, you know, our priest isn't doing that sort of thing, you know, which they're most likely true because it was like, you know, 1% of 1% or something of priests that were, you know, doing this thing. I don't know, some, you know, really low number. But, you know, they, they, you know, they were very comfortable with their priest. And it's kind of like Congress, you know. Uh, everybody goes on about how awful Congress is, but my representative, he gets me. Uh, but in a better way. Um, and, and it's something that I think that affects some people. Like you said, you know people in SNAP. 
I ha I don't know a single person in Snap. I don't know anybody that know that you know that is in it, and uh, and you know I don't have anybody in my Facebook feed that talks about Snap any of that sort of stuff. So for the area that I'm in, the diocese and the people that I run into, you know, it's not a big deal, and it's in the sense that it's not something that is uh, you know a primary importance to people, not something that people bring up all the time. But you know, we do the virtues training and we do all that sort of stuff, and uh, and it's it was something where it's. Uh, very often the back of my mind in the sense that, okay, I'm in the sacristy, I'm preparing for mass, I'm getting the chasuble and all the other vestments on. And then all of a sudden one of the, uh, you know, one of the altar servers comes in and I'm like, okay, I'm by myself with a minor and I, I have to either be in the doorway so other people can see me or I have to make him put the stuff on and get out of here. And it's one of those really stupid, annoying things because it can be a great opportunity to chat with somebody and say, Hey, how are things going? How are, you know, what kind of sports, you know, are going on? Oh, Hey, how's the basketball team doing that sort of stuff. But instead I have to be, you know, paranoid and stupidly vigilant about these sort of things, lest somebody get the wrong idea because, Hey, the priest is alone with a minor in a room. Never mind that the door is open and people are walking by and that sort of stuff. Um, so I think it, a lot of that sort of stuff depends on, the person and depends on the area and I know that uh, a lot of young parents uh, especially dads just suddenly freak out about pedophilia even though it's you know very small problem and a lot of times the abuse happens more often within families rather than strangers and I remember uh, a friend of mine he just had a new baby and then he was just on the alert for predators everywhere he was like Chris Hansen 2.0 and just looking all over the place you know oh you know anybody gets near my kid I'm gonna kill him and this sort of stuff and so I, I think it just depends on the person and where they're at in their life and you know if the kids have been in the world a bit and they've been safe okay you know maybe they're more willing to put them out there a little bit again and and some people are just gonna be like no they're not willing to do that at all and like you said if you know people who have been abused then you're probably gonna be more cautious yourself uh, that sort of thing Great. Uh, I wanted to make sure we get to some of the other categories of questions. Maybe to wrap up, we've kind of blended into the church topic. So maybe to wrap that up before we go on to our Holy Father, where do you think the church, uh, this is, Pooter, Pooter put in and said, look, we need to ask something about the role of women in the church. And I have a particular opinion on it, but before I go there, where do you think the church is heading? with regards to the role of women? I mean, do you th see it changing? Do you see a possibility of, of a bigger role in either the church or the liturgy? I, I think uh, I've made a comment in the past that I think women already have a big enough role in the church, uh, just based on my experience as a parish priest. Because you go into a parish, and I think probably 99 out of 100 parishes most of the ministers are going to be women. You know, the readers are going to mostly be women. Extraordinary ministers mostly going to be women. Uh, even sometimes with the altar servers, they'll be half girls, you know, and then some half boys. And the sacristans, almost always women preparing for mass, taken down from mass, doing all these different things there. And then uh, if you know priests, if their mom is still alive, then you know whose will, you know, you know that's, is, uh, is the one that's triumphant in any situation. You know, if a priest's mom asks him to do something, he's going to do it, you know, unless it's, you know, impossible. You know, Bishop, if his mom is still alive, he's going to do what she has to, you know, what she has to say. Uh, you have religious sisters and nuns at a parish, you know, they're going to have a really strong influence on what's going on. The priest might officially be the head of things, but a lot of times, you know, that's sort of, uh, you know, I might be the hard cap to authority, but the women have the soft authority in the parish. You know, they, have, they want their husbands to do something. A lot of times they're going to get their way, that sort of thing, in the parish level. Um, as for officially, 
I don't really see anything changing because we can't change anything about women priests. And there really isn't much evidence for women deacons, especially in an ordained sense. And the thing is, is that anything that they would have done that historically happened in the church, women can already do. You know, they can already bring the Eucharist to the sick. There are tons of extraordinary ministers that bring the Eucharist to the sick. They can help with baptisms, but really don't need help. It's just a little baby, and you're just holding it, and somebody's pouring water. You know, that's one of the things that they used to do. So basically everything that lay women and then also that religious sisters and nuns do now, you know, there's, I don't see there any additional role for um, women in the Mass and in the liturgy and that sort of thing. Um, as for... In the church in general, I also don't see any uh, big changes that will happen there because women are already so extraordinarily important, you know, not only with religious sisters and nuns, but also living their vocations as wives. And then we see all the different um, groups in dioceses and at the Vatican. You know, Sure, there's lay councils, but also we see in the dioceses themselves, whether working at the chancery or in committees and that sort of thing, how extraordinarily important women are and what a big role that they have. And it's great because we need everybody to be living out their vocation and to be having this very active role in the church, participating and making it their own and praying and worshiping and these sort of things. And women tend to be more devout anyway, at least in my experience, in a lot of parishes and more involved in the church. So they're, all, they're just always going to have that influence and they're always going to have that huge role and it's and it's wonderful for the church you know that everything has its pros and cons and a lot of times some of them are a real pain in my rear end but <laughs> they uh you know they're very important and they're going to continue to be important but i don't think um trying to do something like women priests or women bishops or women deacons will um help and i don't think it's i don't think it's what we should be focusing on instead we should be focusing on everybody being authentic in the vocation that God has already called them to rather than trying to open up new vocations. And I think, I think that last point is, is worthy of emphasis, right? I asked the question, and, and like I said, I have an opinion. I think it's And your opinion wrong. is wrong. It's wrong. I don't even know what it is, but I'm pretty sure it's wrong. <laughs> it's the wrong focus. Like, if that's what you're worried and concerned about, I, I think you're missing out on being a Catholic. Like, that's... I know that you want to be involved... like. And whether this is for a, a male or a female, I know you want to be involved more and you want your your faith to deepen, but it doesn't mean the church needs to change for you to do that. There's so many opportunities that, that I just don't, I think you're missing the point. Uh, right. And if it. you think that being a priest is the only way that you can be Catholic, then that is horrible clericalism. And that's just not who we want to be ordaining. Right, no, right seminary and they're like the only way that i can be like this happens to converts very often the only way i can be catholic is to be a priest we'd say get the heck out of here come back in five years you know that we don't want we're not going to ordain you we don't want you in the seminary we don't want you for the diocese wait till you get a little bit of maturity and wait till you you know you come along to the mind of the church rather than you know thinking that that is the only possible way to be you know a priest or the only possible way to you know be doing things in the church oh we need power no, heck no, I don't want to ordain you if you want to do it to become powerful and to be running things in the church. No, we ordain because you want to be like our Lord and you want to be sacrificing for others and be the least of all and the servant of all, which, you know, we're flawed, but that's hopefully our emphasis and our focus rather than running things. You know, any idiot can run stuff, but we want to be there to be offering this, you know, sacrifice in the sacraments. Yep. And the catechism of the Catholic Church beautifully encapsulates the roles of married persons, uh, the priests, ordained persons, 
single people, uh, single people who are not, you know, priests or nuns. Uh, and it's, it's something that doesn't get enough emphasis, mostly because the media hates us. But I, I think that, you know, that there is a role for everybody. I mean, I even brought it up today in my class, and that, that's one of the big things with the vocations is that there's so many different ways, as you outlined beautifully, Father, that people can participate in their church and in their church community. Andrew, look at that. I'm beautiful. <laughs> No, thank you. But uh, I agree 100%. There are roles for everybody. And it just we're meant to find what role God is calling us to. And why try to, you know, why fight that? Or why try to change, you know, what God's will is? That's just doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. And I have a friend. Um, he, he's a scientist. And he's gay. And he's Catholic. And he's Catholic. And he is a scientist. And, you know, to him, being gay is secondary. I mean, he's chaste, just as the Catholic Church calls him to be. I mean, he never had these conversations and, you know, I mean, he's, you know, that's just how he was wired and, you know, the church and, you know, his, you know, his career and job and science are more important to him than, you know, having a boyfriend and being unhappy that he can't marry somebody in the Catholic church. Yeah. We had a big brouhaha about that uh, in uh, regards to seminary and becoming priests. And they had a document come out about gay people, about gay men becoming priests. And basically the heart of it was, you know, we will allow them, but they have to have been celibate and chaste and these sort of things for years before coming to seminary. And there's some quibble about the language used and this sort of things. And, and it's just like, well, it's the exact same requirements we have for everybody. We want everybody to be chaste before marriage, to be chaste before ordination, to be chaste before vows, all these sort of things. And we wouldn't want anybody in seminary who couldn't control themselves, you know, who are sleeping around and, okay, I'm ready to be a deacon. <laughs> no, no, you're not. Uh, it doesn't matter who you are. If you're sleeping around, no, we're not going to let, we're not going to watch you in seminary and become a priest or any of these sorts of things. Yeah, I have two more questions. Great. And then depending on your time, if there's any questions you want to ask of us, maybe we can flip the tables. Why the Mandarin is so funny looking. <laughs> That's how he is. <laughs> So on our Holy Father, so, you know, there's been some talk, some of the current, current Pope's stances and statements, and how maybe more importantly, it's getting interpreted by others. How do you think uh, lay people today can respectfully discern the Holy Father's intentions? I think one of the easiest things is a rule that I read on the internet, and that is wait 72 hours. You hear something that the Pope said, oh, he did this, he did that. He says hell doesn't exist or something crazy like that. If you just wait a little while while the furor is going on all over in the media and they're blowing up and, oh, the Catholic Church no longer teaches hell or something like that, you just wait a little bit and, oh, then they have the correction. Oh, no, this is what the Pope actually says. Oh, we look back and we see, you know, his consistent teaching since he's been a bishop and these sort of things. And we know what the actual, you know, thing is. And some of it, one thing that really helps me is to realize that the Pope is often speaking to the entire world. So it's not as we can take it as, what is he you know, saying it just to us American Catholics? And we get all offended, like especially if he's talking about annulments and they're not doing annulments quickly enough for these sort of things. Well, in the US, I think we're doing it the quickest in the world. So there's no way we can go faster. And we get offended. Oh, you know, he doesn't know anything. We're doing it as fast as we can. Well, he's talking to a billion people all over the flipping world. He's not talking to the 60 million US Catholics. Uh, that's one thing that helps a lot of people. And another is always context. What is the context that the Pope is speaking in? Is he being 
pastoral and maybe just a little bit vague. He's not using technical language. Okay, that's a different context. Is he just responding to a question here or there? You know, oh, is he talking about something where there's legitimate, you know, differences of opinion? Is he talking about something, you know, very strictly as doctrine or is he just talking about something, uh, you know, possible solutions, these sort of things. I think that helps a lot, at least especially for myself, but also helps other people with, okay, what is the Pope saying? How is he going about things? I don't think it's helpful to be one of those new ultramontanists that all of a sudden, well, Pope Francis said such and such, we got to believe it, we got to do it, whether it's a misinterpretation or, you know, what he actually said. And it, the old ultramontanists, well, Pope Bendix said such and such, then, you know, Pope said it, we got to do it. And it's like they just flip flop, you know, all of a sudden the people who, well, I don't know about this Pope Benedict. Well, he didn't say it ex cathedra. Well, he didn't say this in, you know, in an encyclical. All of a sudden they're like, well, Pope Francis mentioned something right before he stepped into the restroom. We got to believe it, do it and follow it. <laughs> yeah. Don't listen to anyone right before they step into the restroom. <laughs> exactly. Last formal question, and then we'll, we'll open it up here. So uh, this again from the Volgi on the church contramundum, um, he says, many observers would argue that the church has won the argument on the sexual revolution but lost the war. The wreckage foretold, not least in passing Humanae Vitae, has all come to pass and more, and yet it's harder and harder to, gain, uh, to even gain a hearing for traditional mores. Is the genie out of the bottle, or will we hit a period of decadence when we could roll back the craziness? He's very right there. He's, he's, he's exactly right about, we see the popes, and they were very prophetic about what would happen if we jumped in with both feet on like the sexual revolution and these sort of things, you know, talking about divorce, talking about abortion, talking about all these things. And their popes have been prophetic in other places too. I think there's a lot on Catholic social teaching that they're prophetic about as well. But especially in this area with Humana Vitae, like, like he mentioned, um, the popes have absolutely been right. But it just feels so much better to go against the will of the church and the will of God. It just feels so much better to be out there and, you know, premarital sex or sleeping around on your spouse or all kinds of different immorality. And if we don't have this nature where we're seeking to be self-sacrificing, if we don't have this nature where we're being intentional about the church, if we're not, you know, actively denying ourselves and denying the world and going against the world, then yeah, you're, there's going to be no reason to follow what the church asks. You know, the church can be right all at once. And if people decide that that's not important to them, and what's more important is their own personal pleasure, then yeah, the church is going to lose the war. And I think we're already seeing quite a bit of it where there's widespread immorality and there's a lot of widespread wrong ideas. Even to the point of, I don't know how many other churches are very open in their opposition to premarital sex. It just seems like it's totally accepted. Okay. You know, you know, all these pastors kind of wink, wink, nudge, nudge. You're supposed to not live with your spouse before you get married, but who cares? You know, we find this in the Catholic church too. Well, if you allow people to do something like that, then they're going to grasp it with both hands and they're definitely going to go forward with it and they're going to sleep around. They're going to live together and this and that. But I do see a lot of hope in the remnant. And I've always liked remnant theology. Like we see in the Old Testament, that faithful remnant of the people of Israel, and then they're expanding and, you know, and things get better again. And this little faithful remnant where it's just a handful of people, just a much smaller percentage. And through that, you know, revitalizing the rest. 
And I see a lot of that, like I mentioned earlier, with homeschoolers, but also with some of these uh, people going to the very Catholic institutions like Steubenville and Ave Maria and uh, some of these other places. I think John Paul the Great University, those sort of places. Uh, there's one in University of Mary in North Dakota. There are a couple places like that where you see people very intentional about their faith and very much on fire for their faith and revitalizing people around them and sort of being like missionaries out there in the world to their fellow Catholics, to non-Catholics, to non-Christians, to non-religious people. And I think with that sort of very dedicated core, we can have a new springtime of the church. We can have a new evangelization. We can have a revitalization, even if it's going to be really painful in the meantime, and we're going to not have a whole lot of vocations, or we're going to have people leaving the church in droves and these sort of things. I think we'll have a much more faithful core and foundation, and then we'll be able to go out from there and evangelize and, and really make a big difference. And I think the culture itself, you know, until things get better, it's going to get worse, and it's going to be Roman Empire 2.0 and this sort of stuff. But I think there'll still be that small faithful core, and then we'll be able to go from there. And it won't hurt anything that we'll be the ones having five, six, seven, eight, ten kids, and the rest are having zero or one. There's going to be some kind of shift in the future sometime. It just has to happen. You know, same like with Japan, where you have everybody doing zero or one kids. You know, those people who choose to have a couple are going to be making the difference down the road. We'll get right back to the soon. But first, a word from one of our sponsors. Get ready to be blown into the heavens. Sunday. 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 It's ground pounding. Heart stopping. Ecclesiastical. Mayhem. At Lang's one and only quarter mile Holy Roman Catholic Church. Our Lady of the Evening is going to explode. It's world champion Father John Abernathy with his nitro-burning flying fist Agnes Dei at 8.30. At 10 o'clock, get ready to shake hands with the Devil Slayer, Father Bill Monroe, as he delivers his weekly 7,000 horsepower sermon. Late sleepers awake for the 5 o'clock whirling wafers of total transubstantiation with Father Jan Gabriel as he puts the Kyrie in your liaison. We'll give you the whole cue, but you'll only need the edge of it. Our Lady of the Evening, every, every Sunday. Now, let's get back to the program. Great. That's probably the end of our formal questions. So if you have a little more time, we can talk a little bit more. Otherwise, I'm happy to wrap it up. Sure. I don't have any questions for you guys because I already know everything. But if you have some more questions. <laughs> That's what happens when you become a priest. You get to know everything. Absolutely. They put those hands on your head. And because the bishop already knows everything, then all of a sudden you know everything. There you go. So this is just a personal opinion. When we do a mass where we sing the various parts in Latin. So like the Agnus Dei, the Confitador. Do you have one of those that's your favorite? Yeah, you're asking exactly the wrong priest. <laughs> <laughs> I just do what, what, I, what I know a little bit of. But there are other priests. I mean, they can tell you, oh, I do Misa de Angelis, and I do this and that. And I am so awful about that. I, I passed my liturgy classes. I mean, that's about it. <laughs> Uh, and I know a lot of my, my brother priests from my class and the years after me, you know, they'll sing the whole mass or they'll sing a lot of parts of the mass, both in English and Latin and these sort of things. And other ones will do the, you know, what Pope Benedict called the extraordinary form. Other people call the traditional Latin mass. And, and uh, yeah, I'm definitely more of the, uh, I, I, I'm happy to be able to do it in English uh, model, <laughs> but I like any of them that are beautiful. And I like any of them that the people can sing well and especially sing quickly or at least sing how it's supposed to be sung. Because so many times, whether it's in Latin or in English, whether it's a hymn or a part of the mass, it's like people think if they drag it out, it'll be more solemn and beautiful. When instead it's like nails on a chalkboard. It's like, no, it's not on this day. It's like, no, come on, Martha, on the organ. Let's go a little faster. Yep. yep. Mandy, Dr. J, anything else? 
I'd like to know how you come up with a sermon, since uh, you were razzing me, razzing you had it on how to do a sermon. So, well, since we already know everything, we know exactly what to say. Boom. Answer. Boom. Uh, it depends on the priest. And some priests like to write the whole thing out and have it in front of them. I'm more of the model of memorizing it because I figure if I can't memorize it and know it, then there's zero chance anybody else is going to remember it. So if I can't do that, then, you know, the people who are listening to it, I could be able to. Uh, and some priests will do 20 hours of work for a Sunday homily. Uh, I wish I was that motivated and hard of a worker. But what I like to do is, when I'm really doing well, is earlier in the week, I'll do adoration. I'll be sitting in adoration, and I'll go over the readings for the coming Sunday. Um, in the past, I've done groups where we get together, like Bob Evans or something like that, and we'll talk about the readings for the coming Sunday and have some discussion. And I really enjoy praying over the readings and seeing what sticks out to me. And then I write down notes about each of the readings, you know, first two readings in the gospel. And then I write out what I think the conclusion should be and what the theme should be. And I basically do bullet points for myself. And then I make sure I have some kind of conclusion. Uh, the image we use is to have a conclusion is you have to be able to land the plane. You can circle the airport for a little while. You can have your traveling from place to place, but you got to land the plane. So you have to know what your conclusion is going into the homily. Because I've had times where I just forgot what I was saying. There was one time at Mass where it was so warm. It was like Christmas or something like that. And I, I think I was wearing a sweater underneath everything, you know, being stupid. And I was sweating. And I forgot my name. I forgot the homily. I forgot everything. But I remember the conclusion. So I just jumped to the conclusion and walked away because it's just like, no, I'm not going to keep circling the plane around the airport and keep everybody in a holding pat pattern for five more minutes. I'm just going to sit down and have it be a shorter homily and have everybody come up and shake my hand afterwards and say, great job, Father. That was really short. That was great. And with the three-year uh, reading cycle, how do you keep from rehashing, oh, I'm going to pull that, that sermon from three years ago or from six years ago out again and dust it off because I like using that one? Well, so far, uh, you know, having the bishop move me every couple of years has been a great solution. Don't ever have to worry about reusing the same joke or story or whatever about a reading when you're already, you know, gone from the parish within three years. Uh, also, it, it helps um, just looking at it. And you can look at old homilies. And like I said, I do write them out for Sunday, at least the bullet points and things. Uh, but people don't mind a little repetition as long as you're not beating them over the head with it. And I just try to do it based on the readings themselves and make sure that I don't glaringly repeat anything. And I figure as long as you're preaching on the Bible, well, the Bible has a jillion things to say. So I don't think you can go wrong there. And so I just go right on exactly what the readings have to say rather than trying to make up some other point, you know, because it'd be way too easy to say, Oh, you know, I already preached on, you know, whatever point that is going on in society right now and then do it again a month later instead of just say, okay, what's in the readings. And sometimes, okay, how does that apply to our, you know, to what's going on in society? Usually I just try to apply to day to day lives and living the faith. So, so I have a question for you. So most of us are avid second amendment supporters, avid shooters, and, you know, we believe that inherent right of an individual to defend themselves and inherent right of self-defense. I'm curious as where the church and where yourself stand on an issue like that. I know just from certain dioceses, you know, I, I'm where I live, I'm right on the border between two different dioceses. And one has a very strict, you know, no guns policy. And the other diocese doesn't really say much as far as, you know, that goes. But at the same time, the Archbishop is very adamant, anti-gun, anti, you know, very gun control. I'm just curious as where you you feel the church stands on the inherent right of self-defense and how that jives with people who want to support the Second Amendment. 
and that violates the church's overall social policies. Oh, for sure. And I, I, uh, I think there's definitely a spectrum involved, and there's definitely a very heroic side of things of not only turning the other cheek, but also, you know, sacrificing your life, you know, and accepting, you know, that martyr's death. And I think that's a great ideal to go towards and a great sign of heroism and a great sign of sanctity that someone would, you know, be willing to sacrifice their life and give up their life and that sort of thing, um, especially, you know, for others, but also to accept that sort of martyrdom, that sort of thing. But the church doesn't call us to, um, be per- you know, call it wants us to be perfect, but realizes, okay, we are imperfect and realizes that, you know, there, there are goods involved. Like we talk about just war, I think is a great example when we talk about Second Amendment and self-defense because, you know, the nation has a right to this just war, especially protecting the innocent and protecting itself. So if the country has this, you know, right to self-defense, then, you know, absolutely we see the same right in self-defense to individuals. You know, it's wonderful if you can be heroic and say, okay, come in and take all my stuff from my house, just don't hurt the people. And they take the stuff and they go away. But also, there is a right, I forget where it is in the catechism, but I remember somebody was quoting it recently about self-defense. And I think if there is a right to self-defense, it doesn't matter what tool you're using, whether it's a baseball bat or a gun or a knife or a taser or you know pepper spray, as long as you're using it correctly, then I couldn't care less what kind of um, self-defense you're using. Because you know, it's not like you're going to be using biological warfare, which you really can't use properly in self-defense. But we see, instead, I think there is a good... Uh, a good way to do all these things. And there is a good way to, uh, to do self-defense. And there are some dioceses that are crazy about guns. Uh, a priest friend of mine was telling me about how every church in his diocese has one of those gun-free zone stickers or signs or something on it. And it just, it's just kind of insane. Cause I understand, you know, people will be uncomfortable if you were to open carry to mass. Now I've had police officers come to mass before and they're in uniform and open carrying because they're police officers. Nobody batted an eye, you know, nobody cared. But at parishes, you have people who are very pro second amendment, people who are very anti-gun. So I wouldn't be in favor of people open carrying the mass, but if somebody was to conceal carry, well, it's none of my business. And, you know, they tend to be the people who are best with guns anyway. So you're probably, you know, safer at the parish if somebody is concealed carrying or has the gun in the car or something like that. And personally, I think guns are fun <laughs> and I enjoy the heck out of going to a parishioner's house and shooting guns at their place because they pay for the ammunition. They already own the guns. It's a great, you know, uh, for myself, I don't have a gun because all I can see are the ways it goes wrong. You know, I can just see the headline, you know, somebody steals gun from priests and shoots all these people, you know, it's just like, no, I, I just, I don't want to have that happen to me. Uh, but you know, I'm happy with people owning guns and for self-defense and I'm happy for it when it's used correctly. Uh, and happy when it's, you know, law-abiding gun owners, you know, like the majority of gun owners here in the U.S. Um, and, I've, and as far as I've seen in the church, a lot of it is just that, um, is that there is a right to self-defense. There is, you know, a right to protecting the innocent. And, you know, you're, especially with your family and you're protecting your innocent kids, these sort of things. Uh, the church is on board with that. It's just that sometimes the church gets a little political. And for whatever reason, the uh, bishops tend to, you know, unless it's abortion, tend to follow along with whatever the Democratic Party is doing because of dumb old reasons, mostly as far as I can tell. And one of those happens to be gun control and that sort of thing. So I think it's a lot of virtue signaling to have gun-free zones on churches, you know, that sort of thing. Although I would, if somebody was open carrying at mass, I'd say, hey, if you would, please don't open carry at mass. It's going to make a lot of people uncomfortable and cause a lot of problems. And, uh, and you know, and it's just, it doesn't seem to be a very good idea to needlessly cause division like that when they could 
concealed carrier or just keep it in their in their car. Open carry is a problem anywhere. I think it's a ba- it's a bad idea, and like you said, especially at church. Yep, and it makes people nervous, and you just never know what kind of idiot might be open carrying. Like I remember going to the park one time with some friends, and there was a guy walking around, and it made me a little bit nervous, even though the chances are he's a very responsible gun owner, because you don't know what kind of you know person that he is to be in. You know, if you see that, then it's all of a sudden going to be in your mind the whole time that you're around him. Father, uh, you brought up politics. So um, where do you see the church's role in political speech and in public life, so to speak? You know, the Democrats always, you know, scream, you know, oh, you, you better not say anything or we'll take, your tax, your, we'll take your tax deduction away. What do you see the legitimate role of a parish, the Catholic Church within the United States with regard to speaking to the political world? I really hope that we continue with our current policy of not endorsing candidates because I've seen how many other churches and how many other candidates where they, they actively campaign in churches, you know, and they're doing speeches or something and, and they're being recognized and, you know, and I've seen Democrats and Republicans do this in the news and I just don't want it for the Catholic church. I don't think we should be officially endorsing anybody. And I think instead we should keep doing what we're doing, especially with regard to uh, speaking about issues and saying, hey, we have moral authority. We have this authority from our Lord, and we're going to say what's right, and what's right and what's wrong. And I think that we should really rethink some of the things where we, we say something unilaterally about social justice or immigration, when in fact there can be some differences of opinion. You know, we don't have to have open borders of the country. As far as I know, that's not anywhere in the Bible that every country has to have open borders. Instead, we say, okay, there are some differences of opinion. We want to treat everybody as persons. We don't want to objectify anyone. We want to, you know, have, share that same love that God has for us and these sort of things. But, you know, we, I don't think the bishops should, in some of the ways that they've been doing, I don't think they should, you know, publicly endorse certain sides of issues when, in fact, there can be differences of opinion. And I think as we go forward, as that generation retires, dies out, whatever, I think we'll see more of a return to we're going to be politically neutral and we're just going to talk about um, issues. At least I hope that's what's going to happen. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. All right. I think that probably wraps it up for us. So we appreciate, yeah, absolutely. We appreciate your time and, and patience with us. Dress up and wear a a suit and tie. Everybody's (laughs) in t-shirts. Come on. (laughs) That's uh, yeah. We're pretty casual crowd. Yeah. If you could see me, I'm in a sweatshirt. So yeah. (laughs) Well, you fit right in. Roll back the craziness.